Welcome, everyone, to this New Mexico in Focus podcast episode. I am Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And if you listened to our last podcast, you uh, know, but if you didn't, you may be wondering why some of the show from last week that uh, those of you may have watched on air is broken up uh, uh, between a couple of different podcasts. Well, we wanted to to mix things up a little bit and try getting you this content a little differently and see what you guys think. We know your time is valuable, don't often have a lot of it, and to put all of our content into one podcast can make it pretty lengthy, well over an hour on a regular occasion. So we wanted to break it down into a couple different episodes and extend that coverage throughout the week as well. But we wanna know, do you like this idea? Do you hate this idea? Uh, we want to get you this uh, information and these discussions and these um, coverage in the way that fits you best and your lifestyle best. And we know that that has changed for all of us in COVID-19. So drop us a line. You can do that here through the podcast or on any of our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. Just search for New Mexico and Focus. Let us know if you like this or if you want us to go back to doing it all in one big episode. So last time, we had a couple great conversations with the line opinion panel about uh, the news that came out in a Searchlight New Mexico report that the Children, Youth, and Families Department was using the Signal app for communications during the pandemic, but as part of that, even admitting that some of those communications were deleted, which means uh, it is, in effect, shielded from the public and uh, so we talked a lot about that and why that is problematic if we want to hold government accountable. We also talked with Poway Rivera, who is the White House Advisor on Tribal Affairs, one of our own here in New Mexico, who is now joining Deb Holland in the president's administration in Washington, representing and uh, working on the behalf of New Mexicans and beyond. Uh, the line panel also talked about New information from the census about how our population is stagnating a bit in New Mexico and the implications from all of that. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, we encourage you to go back and give it a listen. Lots of great stuff there. And subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. But we're going to kick off this episode with an in-depth interview we did with a panel of civil rights attorneys uh, in the wake of the Derek Chauvin uh, murder trial and convictions. There was a lot of talk and discussion about police reform from defund the police to uh, ultimately what the New Mexico legislature did, which was uh, pass the Civil Rights Act that will largely take away qualified immunity of legal protection for police officers. And that is on the state level. Still a lot of work to be done, though, in terms of police reform and just rebuilding those relationships between police and the communities. Of course, we're still hearing about calls for defunding the police or abolishing the police. And so there is a lot of ground to be made up here. We hope this conversation will be enlightening on especially qualified immunity, what exactly that means, why it's been such a challenge for uh, really achieving justice in these cases, and uh, what more there is to be done and sort of where we go from here. So let's jump into that conversation now, hosted by senior producer Matt Grubbs.
When a Minneapolis jury convicted former police officer Derek Chauvin of killing George Floyd, and when the city paid Floyd's family millions in a civil settlement, it seemed to put a bow on a dark chapter of justice. But few such cases against police officers accused of crimes and civil rights violations end up this way. In New Mexico, the Floyd murder formed a basis for a new law that changes how police officers can be held accountable for crimes committed on the job. NMIF senior producer Matt Grubbs spoke with four leading civil rights attorneys this week about how the Chauvin verdict informs justice here in New Mexico. The death of George Floyd forced a national conversation about the use of force by police. That conversation is one New Mexico has been having for quite some time, though. Law enforcement here shoots people dead at rates often higher than anywhere else in the nation. Accountability for those shootings often happens not in a criminal trial or oversight hearing, but in a civil case. We are joined by a virtual all-star panel of local civil rights attorneys, uh, Francis Carpenter, Carolyn Nichols and Laura Schauer-Ives, thanks so much for joining us. I'll get right to the first question. Um, for New Mexico, is the real impact of what happened in Minneapolis George Floyd's death or Derek Chauvin's conviction? Francis, do you want to start? I think it was both. Um, I think the conviction um, was so cathartic for so many, and I think that it was powerful. Um, I think his death um, caused a, uh, a tide of events to occur um, but th those events, as, as uh, those of us on the panel know, we've been fighting for for years. Um, and so um, I, I think it was both. Sure. Kimmy, how do you see it? Um, does, the, does the conviction send a message that, that the death didn't already? Yes, I hope it empowers other jurisdictions to take similar action if they're faced with something this egregious. I mean, clearly this was you know, I mean, anybody that didn't think this was a murder, um, you know, probably didn't watch the video. I mean, it was just appalling. And the fact that we can capture that type of thing now on, you know, it's so easy for people to actually capture that on video. Um, I hope that in the future when prosecutors review these cases that they take seriously their obligations to treat police officers as, you know, any other human being in a circumstance where they've taken a life uh, and, and decide whether justice demands that they take that person to trial and charge them criminally. And it, they did a really excellent job in this case. I was impressed with the prosecution. I was terrified that there wouldn't be a conviction and what, the, what that would mean for our country if there mm -hmm. wasn't because they did do an excellent job. They clearly took this seriously and they were, um, they were out for justice and, and, and they ended up getting justice, I think. Laura, that exposure, kind of the, the live coverage of the trial itself, wall-to-wall -wall coverage on, on media networks, what does the conviction and that kind of exposure signal to either, um, as Cami said, agencies or, or perhaps potential jurors who see this sort of thing? Well, I think it should signal to everybody that officers are no longer above the law. And they have been for a variety of reasons um, felt emboldened. And, and that has been the lack of criminal convictions, the lack of prosecution, um, the lack of accountability as a result of qualified immunity. And to, to have this and to have the change that we've seen and the, the change in public perception that we've seen over such a short period of time and such a massive change. Um, Policing is very much doable constitutionally. You don't have to commit crimes 
Um, and it's not, it doesn't put officers in danger to do it constitutionally. And so hopefully that's, that's what they do going forward. And I want to get into that here in a, in a couple of minutes. Let's talk first about um, qualified immunity in the New Mexico Civil Rights Act. It, it was born out of George Floyd's death. That's when we first started discussing it last summer. It allows civil rights suits in state courts and prohibits the qualified immunity defense, which is not really a law, but a legal doctrine. And it's protected police officers and, and some other public officials. Um, does one of you want to jump in on, on why that change is important, why the elimination of qualified immunity is important? It's, it's imperative. So again, it's allowed officers to not be held accountable. It's allowed them to act above the law. And, and it's uh, the basic doctrine is that unless there is a case on point or something that looks identical that's happened in the past, an officer won't be held accountable by the courts, um, even if the court thinks what they did was an unconstitutional. And so it allowed officers to behave in a, in a manner that everybody was agree, agreed was unconstitutionally, uh, yet they wouldn't be held accountable in the civil system. And, and in New Mexico, to have really a genuine right of action under the New Mexico Constitution is a massively significant change. Um, we have different constitutional protections that are going to impact policing in the state. So one, I think, really fantastic example is that under the New Mexico Constitution, pretextual stops are not allowed. Um, and so like when you hear about the case of somebody stopped for an air freshener or, you know, it, and New Mexico has recognized in its jurisprudence that pretextual stops are kind of usually always often used to racially profile. And so that now there is a right of action and, and that that can actually be litigated on behalf of somebody that too will change policing. Um, and it will change it instead of having to go back and up and up and down through an appeal, it'll be a lot faster because there's no qualified immunity. It is a big deal. Kemi, how is that different from uh, doing, uh, pursuing a civil rights action in federal court? So it's different in the sense that this is going to allow people to bring cases that otherwise would have been very difficult to bring because, as I'm sure all of these attorneys can attest, it's difficult to make a living practicing civil rights law. Um, you know, your, your ordinary case, I mean, the original intent of the federal civil rights law was to encourage people to enforce civil rights, even though doing so um, meant you were putting your um, self and your client at great risk of no recovery. And then even if you recover for a civil right violation, it, if it's not so egregious that somebody has died or, you know, there's suffered some serious, serious harm, you often have cases where the damages aren't incredibly high. They're, you know, they're, they're not a lot in terms of compensation, but they're important you know, the, the idea was that enforcing civil rights is important and is going to lead to a better, more just society. So attorneys can then seek attorney's fees for prosecuting somebody's civil rights civilly um, and taking cases that aren't huge damages cases. These aren't, you know, fiery semi-truck accident cases. These are difficult cases to take and to win. And then even then, not always high damages cases. So I'm hoping that this will encourage people to take um, smaller cases, quote unquote, in the state of New Mexico to really enforce the Bill of Rights for New Mexicans and to know that they can 
you know, hopefully at least if they're victorious, get their attorney's fees at the end of the day. Um, and that's a, a huge difference than when um, Francis or Laura or I all started practicing law and we're running the risk in federal court of uh, getting thrown out on qualified immunity because we didn't have an exact fact pattern um, and then never recovering any attorney's fees, never being able to get justice for our clients. And it was, you know, it's become very difficult to get a case all the way through federal court. And I'm hoping that this is gonna make the path to enforce New Mexican civil rights much more, um, something that more people feel that they can risk taking on. Francis, how does yeah. that, um, I think you were gonna jump in there anyway, but how does that $2 million um, cap on, on awards impact things? I mean, listen, concessions had to be made. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, what was important is that you know, there, there's public interest in giving force to the laws that we already have, okay? We've had a constitution in New Mexico, um, you know, now for 100, over 100 years. Why, why don't we have a right of action with, with regard to that constitution, okay? Now, House Bill 4 applies to the Bill of Rights, but still, I mean, when you look at when you look at legislation, that's what's having to happen now. Because of qualified immunity, there's a public interest and the, and the public has spoken. I mean, the public said, you know, we are going to, and we're going to have, an, we, we have, we've had these rights, but we have no private right of action to bring forward um, and get justice for the violation of these rights. And that's what House Bill 4 does. There had to be some concessions made. All of us on, that are on this call worked hard um, in, in making concessions, giving and taking. That's the business of legislation. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I'm not, I'm not happy about a cap. I don't think there should be a cap, but I think that it was a good, I think it was a fair concession and I think it was something that needed to be made at the end of the day. Um, but I want to just chime in on something that both Laura and Cammie made a point to, to mention. And that's that, you know, qualified immunity is an affirmative defense. And when 1983 and the Civil Rights Act was, was originally um, you know, put in place, it was to vindicate those violations of constitutional rights. The federal constitution is a floor. Um, it's the floor. The state constitutions, New Mexico, state versus Gomez, New Mexico case, says that they, you can confer, states can confer more rights. A lot of citizens don't even know that. Um, but what, what was shocking to me is when I was speaking to people about House Bill 4, they couldn't believe that we didn't even have, this was the first time here, it's 2021 and we have a civil rights act for the first time. That's mind blowing to me, but that's what's gonna happen going forward when communities, communities are speaking out now and they're speaking out with legislation. And this, as I said earlier, this is, you know, George Floyd's death created an amazing wave um, that can't be ignored. And that wave are, are the voices of these people that for years were shot down by qualified immunity um, which was never the intention of this law. And so that's what's gonna keep happening if, um, you know, across the country. And, and I think we see that now is it, this, this is the public speaking. Sure, Laura, um, cities and counties were pretty vocal about the potential cost of this. Uh, Francis mentioned that it's a, it was a compromise to get this cap in there. Um, you pointed out, I think it was on social media, that, that there's a cost on the other side, a cost to not having a clear path to accountability. Can you explain that? Oh, those costs are many. I mean, the, the costs are in delay. First of all, they, uh, a municipality or the state is in the process of defending the case, defending the indefensible, ultimately. There's a cost in training. 
because training, you know, law enforcement teaches to the cases and not necessarily to the best practices under the constitution. There's a cost to us as uh, taxpayers because defense attorneys are being paid lots of money to file these, to file these motions um, that could actually go to people who, who have been harmed. And there, there is just the psychological cost to our society that anybody thinks that any of this is possibly acceptable. And the cost on the other, I mean, the, the, the county's complaint, um, the Association of Counties, the Municipal League, State Risk, it costs absolutely nothing if they don't violate the constitution. And that's what they need to do. They need to take steps to ensure the officers who are problematic and are, are no longer officers and they need to train well. And we, all, you know, we also just need to rethink what we are focusing our efforts on in terms of uh, what we've criminalized would help as well. But there's, there's a lot of work to do, but I, yeah. the, the counties, the county's complaints and the municipality's complaints don't hold water. And, and I think we'll see that going forward. I think we are, there will be fewer civil rights violations, in fact, because people are being held accountable. Um, Cammie, on that accountability, um, Albuquerque certainly is what a lot of people think about when it comes to police accountability because of the DOJ's findings in 2014. Um, you told me once that civil rights lawsuits um, in New Mexico, at least, have sort of traditionally been the way that accountability happens. Um, what's your read on that? Why is that the case? Well, I think that it forces the, you know, the community to take seriously um, what is happening in their police force. So even in a small, small town, maybe especially, we've had, you know, cases against smaller police forces, um, officers and Santa Fe, Española, you know, various smaller towns in northern New Mexico, southern New Mexico, and in an environment like that, I think it empowers the community to see that somebody can can take, bring a cause of action to vindicate their rights. Uh, it causes discussion among community members mm -hmm. about you know the extent of um, what is lawful police behavior. When is somebody uh, a victim of a you know when when have their rights been violated? And it creates uh, the ability to have these kinds of debates in a real public forum, and and then you see what happens. You know, how does a jury decide? You're taking this to a to a jury. Often these cases, when uh, Shannon Kennedy and I first started practicing law, we had to take every single case to trial because Mayor Marty Chavez was Martin Chavez was not settling any police abuse cases, and so we were in court <laughs> a lot um, for the first ten years of our practice and um, tried cases that ordinarily should have probably settled, but it created a forum uh, for a jury to weigh in. And, you know, there was, we had a lot of success and there was a lot of community discussion around that. There was a lot of media about it. And I think that ironically, the decision not to settle cases actually um, brought a lot of police abuse to light and a lot of violation of civil rights to light that otherwise would never have um, had a public airing. So that that's an important means of change, um, especially with these smaller cases that people might be able to afford to bring uh, given, this, given this new state law. Francis, we just have uh, about 45 seconds left here, but you mentioned sort of communities um, deciding to speak out on this. Is that something that you feel like 
grew out of, of Floyd and Chauvin um, and the conversation we've seen since that happened um, coming up on almost a year ago? Um, I, I think that's part of it, but I think I think communities have been have been screaming for for years. I think they've been speaking out for years. I mean, um, you know, I think one of the most powerful things I saw was a, after the verdict was rendered, seeing all of these people finally these these voices scream, "We do matter." That may I mean I wept when I heard that, and I got chill bumps because that is how I mean that is that that says it all to me is that we finally we matter, you know, and uh, and. You know, one thing I would say, Matt, is that what the other thing that we need, I know we don't have a lot of time, is we've got to start working towards getting a federal standard for police training. The majority of police departments are small community police departments, not large departments. P these, the police departments are allowed to, to create their own training. A lot of these smaller departments go to other departments to try to get that training. We've got to get a, sta we've got to get a standard. Okay, that, I, I just have to say that because I think it's in, in, a, in a combination with this legislation that, that the communities are pushing forward, um, we need to also start trying to push uh, for a, a national standard. Well, listen, we're out of time, but I thank you all so much for, um, for taking time to talk about this with us. I know it'll be in the news inevitably uh, again, but we look forward to discussing it with you more. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. There was so much to talk about, and there will be more continuing into the future, but we did get quite a bit of extra time with our civil rights attorneys to talk about some more issues, including the ongoing DOJ consent degree with Albuquerque Police, the reform efforts there. We've talked about this a lot in recent years. That consent degree has been in place for over six years now, is still in place. Uh, the monitor... Um, Ginger, he continues to fault some things within the department. And at the same time, this week or last week, the uh, police union put out advertisements, billboards uh, with the hashtag Crime Matters More. Uh, basically, the message is that they, they want out of the consent decree. They're tired of the oversight. And uh, so, again, this just continues to be a complex and complicated issue and uh, conversations like this are what we hope to bring to the table to help us to try to find some solutions moving into the future. So here now a little bit more of that conversation. Thanks for joining us for this New Mexico in Focus Web Extra. We are talking to our panel of civil rights attorneys who have been doing this work in New Mexico for years. Um, we have Francis Carpenter, Cami Nichols, and Laura Schauer-Ives with us. Thanks for all sticking around. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about police, um, police accountability. APOA, um, the Albuquerque Police Officers Association, has recently been in the news. Um, they have a campaign to basically um, end uh, the court-approved settlement agreement with the Department of Justice for the um, 2014 finding of a pattern in practice of use of excessive force and, and kind of basically unconstitutional policing. Um, is there too heavy a hand by the feds? I bet I know what the answer is going to be, but um, do they have a point? Well, yeah, I mean, I think they, they certainly had a point. Um, they came in at a time when things were incredibly bad in terms of a lack of respect for, you know, the safety of, of ordinary folks in New Mexico in terms of the willingness of the Albuquerque Police Department to use 
to use force and in terms of the ability of, um, you know, let's say the officers who were interested in, in operating lawfully and within the parameters of the law were being hampered by the fact that folks who were flagrantly violating right. the law were getting away with it, um, were being protected, were facing zero consequences either within the department or um, you know, even in civil cases, um, even if you did the difficult task of going to trial and, and, and getting a judgment, there was very little repercussion for the individual officer. They would be maybe put on desk duty for a little while and turned into a spokesperson or something before they would go back. You, you, usually, Kami, they were promoted, weren't they? That, that often happened, yes. It, yeah, you'd, you'd bring a suit against an officer and then find out uh, you know, after he sued, a judgment's rendered. Ten Circuit said they violated their constitutional rights. Even I had that case, and and then next thing you know, you're this guy's bad, same dirty cop, same same bad bad person. And when you when you meet up with them again, this time he's a sergeant. He's been promoted. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, In corporate America, guys, ladies, that doesn't happen. That's what's amazing to me is that we we allow our police forces to be run at a lower standard than we would a corp, corporate America does for their employees, right? Um, sorry to jump in, but no, no, no. you're right. Yeah. yeah, I mean the fact that the Department of Justice came in after the Ellis case. So when the when jury when the jury came back, Ray Schultz, the chief of police that had been the chief of police for years, um, who in my mind. Um, along with Marty Chavez, I remember that Cami. I was working with Brad Hall and we tried every case and it, that didn't turn out very well for the city because you know it kind of backfired on him, didn't it? But, but my point is that the, the Ray Schultz re resigned as chief of police before the jury came back with that verdict. Within a few hours before they came back with that, that verdict, I think that spoke a million million words. But then the Department of Justice came in after that. The Department of Justice's investigation that was based on fact. They did extensive research. They had pulled, they had collected tons of police reports, evidence, spoken to the victims, spoken to the officers, took both sides of the story. Their report, their DOJ report, was based on facts and evidence. And this pushback, and why is it taking so long? You look at Ginger's reports, he's the monitor. Um, you look at his reports, and it seems to be repetitive that there is this constant refusal to amend the, in the, the use of force training, for example. That's just one of the examples that you see that, that, that this years and years, why, why, is there, why is this reluctance by APD to do that? You yeah, there's that? absolutely an easy way to end federal oversight, which is to comply with the law. Exactly. And, and they have continued to refuse to do so is their problem and the public's problem because we have to experience it, but it's something that they can end and they shouldn't be seeking you know, dissolution in front, front of the court at this point. They are clearly not in basic compliance with the expectations. Uh, their argument is a, it's a tough one. You know, you see it every time someone runs for, um, runs for office, it's, it's anti-crime, it's crime matters more. Um, it's a, it's a tough one to sort of dig below the surface on, um, which you've all tried to do, I think, professionally. Um, Laura, the, is the issue that 
um, you know, as Ginger issues these reports, James Ginger and, and his monitors, as they um, issue these reports, they say, okay, you have the policies in place, and then you get down another level and you're doing pretty well there, but then when it comes to actual implementation of it, um, that's, that's what's falling down. Is that a culture thing? What's your read on that? I think it is a culture thing, and I think it's an ongoing, enduring culture within APD. And that is why it requires federal oversight and this amount of intervention to reverse what was took a long time to, to, to make. Um, it'll take a long time to dismantle it. And I, I believe the you know, compounding of the no settlement policy with uh, qualified immunity, those two things acted in concert to make uh, like no accountability. So if you go into, if a department goes into every use of force with the expectation that it's going to go to trial one day, they're not gonna gather the evidence uh, against the officer that one day an attorney will use against them. And so I think that, you know, that was happening for so long um, that the department became, you know, they, they hid all of their malfeasance. And I think they continue to do that uh, in, in the field. And that's something that the federal government needs to address I, and continue to. I, I spoke with the, um, the governor at one of her press conferences a couple of months ago, at least. Um, and Kind of asked her about the um, the metropolitan shooting investigation situation, and uh, at least the way it was set up at the time, um, the agency to which um, the officer who fired the shot belongs is the lead agency in the investigation. Everyone else sort of has can chime in. Um, she said she was she didn't think that was the best practice. Is there any push um, to change that? Um, is is that a you know, an investigative situation that works or can work? I mean, I would well, say no. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a situation, you can't have the, the same agency investigating the officer, but we've, we've been through a variety of iter iterations of how to investigate these departments. And, you know, the complaint is we don't have enough resources. Um, the larger departments need to investigate themselves. The state police can't always investigate the smaller departments and, and probably the true answer would be a genuine independent agency that's looking at uh you know mis misuse of officers authorities and abuse of those authorities um and and i think i would want that office to have independent prosecutors in it plus the ability to investigate these cases because it hasn't worked any other way you know, we haven't seen a successful prosecution of any of these officers who we have all argued, you know, behaved unconstitutionally and we've argued criminally often. Who does that well? Is this a, a, a BI situation like the Colorado Bureau of Investigation or, or some sort of state agency? Um, can you point to someone who does a good job of, of investigating um, officer shootings? I I, I can't uh, because every experience I've ever had, Matt, is police investigating police. There's a fine blue line that exists. All, everyone knows that. Um, and when you have police investigating police, it doesn't make any sense. Um, um, and so, 
you know, I, I completely agree with Laura. It has to be an independent agency that has no ties to police department or not police officers as officers themselves. Um, I would even argue that prosecutors, no offense to the DA's office, um, but I would argue that they're a little bit close to police. Uh, they have too much of alignment with officers because they work with officers every day to prosecute cases. I think it should be, um, you know, um, a law enforcement expert, for example, um, you know, someone that we that that has investigated and has experience and training um, in in this area, and would just be a, a, an expert that would review things. And um, but if we were going to have a panel, I think it should be a, a independent panel, like Laura said, and uh, this, the governor could could certainly create create that in uh, a separate division in, inside the government, state government, for that. I would argue. You've all said that um, that constitutional policing is is possible, um, and that uh, eliminating qualified immunity as a as a defense doesn't mean that you can't police. Um, does it make it more difficult? Um, does it make people have to think more about policing in situations where they don't have much time to do that? No, I mean I I don't I don't think so at all. I mean I've worked throughout the years and encountered um, both doing criminal defense and civil rights work, many officers who I, if somebody told me that they did something egregious, like that they use, you know, excessive or they beat somebody up for no reason, for example, I wouldn't have believed the person telling me that because I knew that this particular officer had a great deal of integrity, patience. Um, you know, this is not an easy job. It takes a lot of patience and integrity and intelligence to do this job, the job of policing correctly to begin with. Um, and they weren't, you know, having the defense of qualified immunity didn't um, make it easier to be a good law enforcement officer. It's mm -hmm. always difficult. It's a difficult job, but it's completely doable if you are paying attention. Um, if you, you know, you, you learn to respect the constitutional rights of the people you're dealing with. You learn to respect their humanity and you deal with them, um, you know, with the kind of care that each situation calls for and you don't lose your patience. You don't uh, worse, you don't become abusive and abuse your power. That's the, the worst end of the spectrum. You know, it's, it's no harder to be a police officer without qualified immunity. It's, it's already a difficult job, but it's completely a job that can be done and done well. I've seen it, it, it does exist, um, but it's even harder for those officers when they are constantly reminded that it's easy for other officers to abuse their power and get away with it. Imagine trying to make sure that you're, you're, you're exercising all of your best judgment, all of your restraint, all of your patience, putting yourself at risk um, day after day, and then seeing people getting away with behaving badly, you know, treating other people um, worse than they would treat an animal. And here you are trying to do your best, and yet they're getting away with behaving like that over and over again. That makes it much more difficult <laughs> to police um, constitutionally or within the bounds of the law when others are not um, doing so and, and there's no consequence. I think you've all seen that um, watching a, a good police officer work is it's it's pretty impressive um, what they do. Um, during our broadcast segment, um, I think Laura and Cammie, you both sort of mentioned um, that those officers 
And Cammy, this is sort of what you were just talking about, but those officers, uh, there is an erosion of morale when they sort of see um, whether it's, it's brass or administration or just other cops sort of trading on the trust that they've built. Um, we hear a lot um, from the APOA, from the, from the union, that morale is at an all-time low. Um, I think what they're saying is that they don't feel like they're backed up by these people. Um, but is that sort of the flip side to this, that, um, that other people are sort of cashing in on, on all these deposits they've made? Yeah, I mean, I think that I've seen officers who have been on the force for a long time and have done a great job and would be really wonderful leaders within the department being passed over for leadership positions. That's right. And I, I think that that makes morale very low. <laughs> you know, if you, if you are trying to be a, a decent and good police officer, which is difficult, and you're seeing the other decent and good police officers who you would like to follow the example of being passed over for promotion again and again, that's absolutely eroding to morale, I, I would think, in a huge way. Um, this is, I, I know we kind of tend to gravitate towards, towards APD. Do you see this happening at other agencies around the state? Um, is this just an Albuquerque problem? It absolutely happens throughout the state. Um, and there is, there's just a culture in law enforcement right now where exactly what Cammie is describing, the people who are misusing force, misusing their authority, the expectation is that their fellow officers not speak out about that. If you do speak out about it, you know, you're retaliated against and you're not going to advance. And so there's a, a good amount of incentive for officers to kind of at best be quiet about what they're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you're running a police department and you're, the message that the higher up keeps giving is, we're the good guys, we're out to get the bad guys. The, the, the situation that you've created with, the, the, with the, everyone that's graduated from the academy is that it's us versus them. That's not what policing is about. Policing is, we're here to help. We're part of the community and we're going to help. But that, that is what every, the majority, I will say, of departments, that is how they are fed. When they're when these young, these young, these officers, when they get recruited, when they start the training, then when they go into their police academy training, you have to pay attention to how much time they're spending at Albuquerque Police Department, four hour block for constitutional training. You can't imagine the amount of time that they spend target shooting. That what that the message that they're sending and how much time that they're getting trained on certain topics and certain issues creates in their minds a prioritized list of what is important for me to know and not know. When you're given four hours of training on the Constitution, that pretty much falls to the bottom of the list, doesn't it? And then when you're told it's us versus them and people that, uh, as we've spoken about earlier, commit violations, they've been told that they violated this person's rights. In fact, a jury or you know, a judge said they did so um, and they're promoted. Again, this sends another message. When they're not disciplined, um, everything for me goes back to a parenting, Matt. Every example can be made to parent. We have three mothers on this panel. If I told my daughter, don't do that, you're not supposed to do that. She goes out and does it, and I don't do anything. The message I'm sending is it's okay to keep doing that, right? And it, 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 it is, it's something that has not just happened in the last five or 10 years. It's been going on for a long time. 
And that's why you have people now pushing for bystander liability training, which is free. Georgetown University, there are tons of free training, people that are willing to provide free training to law enforcement agencies on bystander liability. Um, and and that, that's another thing. We Officers have to start speaking out and feeling confident that they're not gonna be punished for speaking out. George Floyd's case is the perfect example for that. Those officers, you can't tell me that, that there wasn't a moment in time in which they thought in their minds, this is wrong, but they never said anything. And when officers feel confident to start coming forward and saying something, I think we'll see a big change as well. You saw two of those officers were, were training and had, had just recently been hired. Um, which sort of speaks to that. Um, we've taken a bunch of time, but uh, before we go, are, are you seeing the kinds of policy trainings, um, the kinds of, uh, I know there was just a sort of a, a shuffle um, at the top of APD with the hiring of Sylvester Stanley to be in charge of training and the academy and, and IA, um, internal affairs. Uh, are you seeing the kinds of changes that can work if given the right kind of support and enough time? You know, that, <clears throat> I, I guess we'll just have to see. That would be my answer to that question. We'll have to see. <laughs> Sounds like um, not a lot of confidence um, from the panel in, in that regard. Well, listen, um, thanks again for, for taking so much time. I know this is, this is online, but I think it's helpful to a lot of people, and we really appreciate um, just sort of talking through a lot of this with us. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thank All right, next up, we are back to that line opinion roundtable from last week that joined us via Zoom. I want to remind you, it's former Senator Dee Dee Feldman, a regular contributor to the line. Also, Dan Boyd, the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Albuquerque Journal, and attorney Ed Perea. And uh, they sat down to talk about one of the other big stories of last week, which was the announcement from Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham that if vaccinations continue to roll out in the way that they do and everything else holds in terms of spread rate of COVID-19, all those, um, those numbers, those things that they are looking at and trying to keep all of New Mexico safe and healthy, that the state may be looking at a full reopening in about nine weeks, uh, middle to late June. And even before then, they changed some of the protocol and uh, the color-coded status. Most of the state, that means, is now uh, turquoise. And so that means capacity limits and things will be loosened somewhat. And so a lot to digest there, especially in terms of how we get to that magic number of 60% of New Mexicans vaccinated, which is what the governor's pointing to for that full reopening uh, we've all probably heard stories about uh, people who are hesitant about the vaccine or who don't follow up with the second shot, the booster shot, lots of different things. And the government is going at a bunch of different strategies, including trying to really bring primary care doctors into this equation so people can get vaccinated when they go for regular checkups or other things and really just get the messaging out there to help to try to accelerate that uh, return to normalcy that we've all been craving so much. So let's head back to the line opinion roundtable now and host Gene Grant. 
Saying the Mexicans were, quote, conquering COVID, Governor Lujan Grisham announced the state could be nine weeks away from reopening. That's theaters, restaurants, bars, the works. The bar the state needs to meet by then is 60% of the people eligible have been fully vaccinated. If that happens, she'll revise her public health order and lift capacity limits at businesses. Now, the state's red, yellow, green, turquoise system for county openings is also being revised to include vaccination levels. The key to all this seems to be vaccines, and according to this week's numbers, we're about two-thirds of the way to having one million people vaccinated. Ed, we saw the governor for the first time this week put a date positive on when we, when we can get to something close to normal. What do you make of the reaction and the significance of her decision? Yeah, Gene, I think this is a long time coming. Uh, I, I hear from, from local businessmen, especially small business owners, who are just elated by the news. Uh, you know, they've been... They've been waiting so long for this for this type of news, and I think there's a lot of excitement. I think there's a lot of excitement amongst even the employees out there who are waiting to get back back to work. Uh, you know, I, I think we are seeking whatever that new norm is, and and this gives us the opportunity to have some some clarity as to you know what the future may may look like. I know there's still some work to go. Uh, we need to reach that that rate that that 60% mark is is what the uh, governor is shooting for by by June, and by all indications, we're on track to to make that happen. But uh, I think all in all, it's it's a positive, uh, you know, across across the board. Again, especially the the, uh, the core group that I have contact with, and, the, and those are small business owners uh, who felt like they've been left out and and have been impacted the most by this by right. this shutdown. I'm hearing so the same. Exactly right. Hey, you know, on, on Ed's point, only Vermont, Massachusetts, and Connecticut have a higher vaccination uh, rates per 100,000 than New Mexico. So, Didi, we're doing something well there. The governor and Dr. Scrace were clear that the 60% vaccination threshold was not herd immunity, however. Are people who are itching to get out going to be clear on that distinction? Because that term is just sort of floating out there for everyone's own individual interpretation. Yeah, herd immunity is... Uh a different concept than uh, 60% having uh, been vaccinated because herd immunity also um, takes into account the people that have had the disease and then have developed antibodies. So when, you, uh, when you're looking to calculate herd immunity, which is a very amorphous thing, you have to not only look at the people who have been vaccinated, but the people that have had the disease. And that gives you uh, some idea. Now, um, you know, it, the, there are many, there, there are so many variables for the scientists to look at. I mean, because children under 16 are not being vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and, and then of course, there are the new variants as well, as Ed mentioned. So uh, it's, a, it's a complex thing, but I think the important thing is that we are very much headed in the right direction. And uh, if we keep our um, masks on when we're indoors, and if the Department of Health does a good job in reaching out to those people who might have some hesitancies in taking the vaccin vac vaccine, vaccine, or even their second dose of the vaccine, I think that we're, we're really headed in the right direction. And we should be, as the governor was, very proud of our efforts uh, here uh, as we're like 400 or 440 days into this really horrific historic period uh, in our nation. That's a good point there. 
Uh, you know, Dan, Dr. Tracy Collins said on our show earlier this month that herd immunity isn't a guarantee with COVID-19, as Didi was mentioning, <clears throat> especially when you talk about a population as large and diverse as an entire state. But given that, are we asking for trouble by throwing open our doors at the height of tourism season? Uh, you know, any concern of spread blunted by what would be a relatively high vaccination rate? Are, are we in balance here? Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, concern that um, this herd immunity, it's a different, difficult number to quantify exactly where that might be. There's a lot of unknowns still about how often we might need to be vaccinated, you know, whether people who, who've recovered can be infected again. That's right. Um, things like that. But, but I think like Ed was mentioning, too, that there is this pent up demand for uh, a little bit of a new normal and to get back out there and certainly for businesses who have suffered, um, you know, to be able to reopen and staff back up and and, and hopefully enjoy these summer months that are coming yeah. up. But I think, you know, I think the governor's in, in a tough spot there, kind of, you know, either way, there's going to be some risk. And, and you, you know, using this kind of vaccine as a, uh, as a carrot, this 60% threshold, I do think it's going to be harder to get to that. You know, the, a lot of the folks who really wanted the vaccine have got it at this point. So mm -hmm. I don't think getting to 60% will be a slam dunk necessarily, but um, certainly the state has been looking to reach out to different communities, work with primary care doctors and things like that to try to, get over that that um, threshold. Glad you just mentioned that. Uh, you were part of that press pool, of course, on Wednesday for the governor, and I heard you ask your question too. But Dr. Collins made that point about reaching out to your primary care doc. She even mentioned friends that you trust. I mean, she sort of covered a lot of bases about how one can get comfortable with the idea of, of vaccinations because we're just not going to get across the finish line unless we have more people participating. Are those, are those do we need something more than that? A campaign, a paid campaign? of some sort, what, what do we need to do here to get more folks to line up and get vaccinations? Uh, yeah, I, I think some of that probably helps. I mean, I think a lot of folks have a relationship with their primary care physician or doctor and maybe some some trust there. I do think there's still probably some parts of the state, the state you know, with um, Spanish language speaking populations that maybe haven't been getting the information um, that others in the state have been getting. So some more outreach at, targeted at them and, and using local groups on the ground to kind of um, you know build trust in those communities. Uh, I think it's doable. I think New Mexico's effort has been, you know, laudable in a lot of ways, but I think certainly there's also those who would say, why don't just open it right now? You know, um, you know, it's never going to be, it doesn't seem like the virus is going to be totally going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Ed, you know, the way Dan just finished right there, I've heard that sentiment from so many people. And I want to ask you this under the idea of the stakes, um, you know, the mask mandate is going to stay in place for now. Indications will follow this, uh, you know, the CDC at this point. Now, will opening at the end of June swamp any mask momentum that's left? I mean, I know a lot of people, they just want to rip these things off at this point and just get on with it. We, we talked a little earlier about, about the new normal, and I think maybe we need to start becoming comfortable with the, with the new normal. And that new normal may include wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. and you, you look in other countries and that is, that is their norm. And I know uh, often sometimes our way of thinking, we like our, our independence and you know, this mask may be cumbersome to some, but I think in the interest of overall society for the long term, we need to continue to do some of those, take those steps uh, that are going to ensure that we continue to move on this positive track to, to minimize the, the infections out there. So, uh, you know, I think it, it's all about information and continue to spread the word that, you know, the masks are, are can be something positive to ensure that we don't slip back into where we were several months ago. Didi, I can't help think about last summer and our, uh, you know, somewhat tourist season that we had in places like Red River and up north where there were a lot of Texans coming in. 
masks were not part of the equation. Do you get my drift here? They just were not having it. And especially, I can't even imagine now trying to get tourists to wear masks while they're here. Does that even have a, a, a prayer? I mean, there will always be people that will not wear masks. And there will always be people that uh, will not be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to chip around those edges. And I think that the, that the Department of Health is doing a pretty good job by getting people <clears throat> to listen to trusted voices. And they have a campaign now called Trusted Voices. And they have, you know, like black archbishops, mm -hmm. EMTs, they have... Uh, it's a social media campaign. I think there's some TV advertising as well. Um, I think uh, tr Dr. Tracy Collins has got the right approach. She's asking people why they're not getting vaccinated. She's having their primary care doctors uh, contact them and offer them the vaccine when they come in for something else, but basically to communicate with them because you know why people are not getting vaccinated uh, why they're not wearing masks, everybody has their own reason. And uh, as she said, one press release in English is not gonna do it. Uh, you have to meet people where they are. And that's a sort of one by one retail process rather than you know, um, uh, doing some sort of mandatory thing, which I think they've really tried to avoid mm -hmm. uh, at the state level. I mean, you could mandate uh, mandate tourists uh, to uh, be tested at the airport. You could mandate um, mandate that they wear masks for any kind of um, recreation that they indulge in. But I mean, I don't think that's that's being contemplated. Mm -hmm. Interesting stuff there. will have to do it for us. Thanks, as always, to our panel for their research this week and sharing their opinions. I'm back in a moment with a final few thoughts. All right, again, we hope you enjoyed this shorter episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition, dividing it up into a couple different episodes, give you a little more easily digestible uh, chunks but we want to know what you think about it, whether you like it or don't. We just want to hear from you. So reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you think. Also want to make you aware we're working on a, another episode release in the next couple days with some of the great stuff we've done recently on Facebook Live. We try to come to you live at least once or twice a week with some other news of the week or conversations or introductions to uh, interesting people in the community. And recently we had two such things. We uh, talked to Axi Navas of the State Outdoor Recreation Department to find out about their work, uh, which uh, that office was set up by the governor and the legislature a couple of years ago. And as we really look to ramp up uh, tourism again coming out of COVID-19, that will be a huge part of that. So it's great to talk to Axie. Also, they've got some money to give away uh, in the form of grants to help with that tourism and that outdoor recreation. So you'll find out all about that. Also, a terrific thing with the Children's Hour, a show you may be familiar with, airs here on KUNM as well as a bunch of other places. Uh, and they are doing something very cool. It actually had its premiere over 
the weekend, but it will play on the Children's Hour later in May, and you can stream it on podcasts, various other ways, but they did a musical that they created, all the kids and some uh, adult contributors entirely themselves created around dealing and coping with the COVID-19 pandemic in the last 14 months that we all have just endured. So Katie Stone from the Children's Hour joined us. She's the executive producer and has so many great things to say. We want to bring that to you as well. So be looking out for that soon. In the meantime, stay safe and stay healthy as always. And we will talk to you again soon.